We have a rather odd tradition here at Two Rivers, based on a summer summer a couple of years ago where the air condition unit uh, died and the school system said, we're not going to be repairing it until the end of summer. We started something called Summer Shorts, where every week I have a challenge to myself to have more of a homily rather than a sermon. Rather than my normal 50 minutes, I try to keep it to about 45. And uh, just kidding, just kidding. No, I, I, I think I've got a throwdown. I saw a former assistant, Luke Rasmussen. Is he in here? I thought I saw. There he is. So my Anglican brother over here is probably going to say, let's see if a Presbyterian can pull off an Anglican homily. I know you can do it now, but I don't know how you learned how to do it. But... Um, we're going to be together in First Peter for the next 11 weeks. And there is one word that we want to encourage, that we see as the theme of First Peter. And I'm going to, on occasion, draw from Second Peter, uh, his second letter. But that one word that we want to emblaze on your mind and your heart... A word to observe not only of Peter and not only of Jesus Christ, but that you'll observe in your own life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's that word, steadfast. That no matter what we face, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever calamity, disaster, even death, that we'll face it steadfast. The scripture that we're going to look at this morning is the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, And for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. May God be pleased to bless us with a rich understanding of this, his holy word. This morning, I recall a time when I was hiking with some companions in Linville Gorge uh, in North Carolina. And we needed to cross the raging Linville River. And we knew that if we were to slip as we are trying to cross the, 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 the river because of its fierce flow, that it could potentially wash us just a hundred yards down the river and then over the notorious Linville Falls, which no one would survive. And we had, in my companions in my hiking group, we had men of various stature. We had one guy that was very wiry and pretty lean. And we didn't really give him much, uh, we didn't really give him odds on being able to cross the river. We put all of our money on the, the larger gentleman that was with us. A slow hiker, but we thought he would be fierce as he crossed the river. Each step with his weight, would hold him firm. But it didn't. And the man who was leaner, less even fit, 
was able to cross as if he was just floating across the river. We ask him, once we made it across in our struggle, we ask him, boy, you're a lot stronger than you look to be. And he said, no, no. He said, I didn't try to muscle against the river. I didn't try to make my way through. But what I did was instead of relying on my legs, I relied on where I placed my feet. And I placed my feet systematically on firm rocks. Those rocks have stood the test of time in this river. And I knew if I could just connect to the rock, then I could cross. This morning, we see Peter, whose very name, as he's given here in verse 1, Peter means rock. It means stone. Peter is writing to a Gentile or Greek audience. And he wants to introduce and reintroduce and remind them that they have another rock. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter, the rock, the one who was a coward, the one who even betrayed Christ with his testimony of not knowing him, would be found by Christ, would be restored and reminded that his name was Rock and Steadfast. But he couldn't find strength in himself that it would be found in Jesus Christ, the living stone. Not a dead God or a dead prophet, someone who's an inspirational figure, but someone who remains a steady, steadfast rock of refuge for us and for our weak faith. Our faith is based not upon our own strength and spiritual strength, but it's based upon the object of our faith. What are we looking in faith to, to be strong? And so, Peter goes on to say, I, the rock, want you to see that your faith is not based on your own abilities, but it's based on you being steadfast and remaining in the face of all trial and temptation upon the living stone, Jesus Christ. And in so, you become so bonded with Him that you become steadfast. You become a living stone. You become a rock. Eugene Peterson, in writing on 1 Peter 1.1, he writes these words. I, Peter, am an apostle on assignment by Jesus, the Messiah, writing to exiles scattered to the four winds. Not one is missing, not one forgotten. God, the Father, has his eye on each of you. And so, this morning, he uses a term here, the diaspora. He uses a term to say, those that are the elect of God now scattered, that previously had only been applied to Jewish men and women, to true Israel, and now to a Gentile, 
a Greek audience, even to us as this letter by inspiration and inerrancy has been passed down to us. He looks to us and he says, you too are scattered. In this room, we have the four winds. There are folks that, here, that live here locally and there are folks that live abroad. There are folks that find themselves in a life situation that is filled with trial right now and others that find themselves in a life situation that's filled with temptation. Peter's letter is for you. And he wants in his very first verse and introduction to say, God is your Father. And being elect in this terminology of foreknowledge means that it is assured that He is your Father, that He has adopted you, and that because He's your Father and you're His son and daughter through Jesus Christ and His ongoing work in your life, He has not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. And that, that eye of the Father on us, it is the only thing, it's the only thing that can get us through trials and temptation. He uses unique terminology in the ESV where he says that we are elect exiles. The term for exiles is actually the same term for sojourner. And it can be defined as a stranger dwelling for a short time, a resident alien. That's my favorite definition. Stationary, but not settled. I used to work for a company when I was in high school, that made portable airplane hangers. Portable airplane hangers. And we made them in upstate Greenville, South Carolina. And then we shipped them off on a flatbed to Florida that had a number of airplane communities where instead of a boat in your yard, you have an airplane in your yard. Instead of a driveway, you have a runway that you can literally leave your driveway, get onto the runway, and fly to wherever you want. And so we sent a lot of portable airplane hangers there. Now, portable was just a catch because it basically was just a metal structure and a metal shed. But because of tax reasons in Florida, the company had found that if they marketed it as portable, then there was a savings. So what we did was once we finished the airplane hangar, we were instructed to weld a trailer hitch on the outside of it. This morning, we are called by Peter to have the, and adopt the mindset of an exile. But not an exile who doesn't unpack his things. Not an exile from his home that is like a refugee is suddenly finding himself in a refugee camp just waiting, waiting, waiting for the first opportunity to go back home, never involving himself in, in the life of the community that he finds himself, never blooming where he is planted. No. I want you to imagine if you lived in a motor home, then people would say, wow, you are not a resident alien. You're an alien. You're a refugee. You, you don't, you're not settled here. If you had a home, then you're going to be someone that could be considered settled. And if it was something that you inherited, 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 and couldn't wait to pass on, maybe you're too settled. You would not desire to live anywhere else. 
So what I want you to do is when you go home today, if you have a home or an apartment, condo, if you don't live in a motorhome, get a trailer hitch and weld it on. And that you're communicating, I am in this world, but this world is not my home. I am going to settle, but I'm not going to so establish myself that I can consider myself in this world my only home. A famous letter within the the first hundred years following the resurrection of Christ was called the Epistle to Diogenes. And he wrote in there about Christians. Christians during this dispersion and how they became pilgrims and how they became They didn't become so intimate as to discount their hopes for heaven and the promise of that as their heavenly home, but they became involved. He said, Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech or their customs. They dwell in cities both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast, following the customs of the region in clothing and in food and in the outward things of life generally. Yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state, that is heaven. They inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof, they take their share of all responsibilities as citizens, and they endure all the disabilities as aliens. Alien, resident. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land a foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. This morning, how would you know if you are an elect exile, chosen by God to be a pilgrim? How would you know? What are the distinguishing marks? And I want to tell you that there's some identifying marks that Peter will lay out in the course of our weeks together. But I just want to hit a couple, a couple of four that has distinguished Christians throughout the ages before we conclude this morning. If you look at verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What Peter is doing is he's saying that you're not in this alone. And at your sanctification, the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian today, He is at work even now. Unbeknownst to you, it's not simply your sheer uh, ability or even your faith that is making you or keeps you obedient. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And out of that, out of your actions, out of your obedience, and out of your deeds, God looks to those things, imperfect though they may be this side of the heavens, that God looks at those actions and those deeds through the lens of Christ's blood, and He sees them as perfect. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but... Many Reformed Christians are very familiar with the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification has sometimes been abbreviated and defined as just as if I never sinned, so that 
repenting of my sins, turning from my sins, asking for forgiveness, that forgiveness is promised to me such that now when God looks at me, he sees me as his own son, Jesus Christ. He sees me perfect. He sees me as a perfect son or daughter. But what about my actions that follow that? For example, if I have uh, an elderly neighbor and I decide to help them about their house, I decide to help them with transportation, I decide to help them with companionship, I decide as a Christian that I'm going to serve them. I'm going to show compassion to them. I'm going to sacrifice my time or even my goods and my resources to serve them. But in the course of serving them, I find that I'm looking at my watch because my favorite program is soon to come on. Okay, I hope she hurries up with this story so that I can get home. Okay, done. See you tomorrow and leave. So I did a good deed. I was a Christian who showed mercy, even as I've received mercy, but it was still tainted by selfishness. How does God see that act? Does he say, oh, you were so close, but you blew it at the end. That's not obedience. That's not sacrifice. You don't get any reward in heaven for that. I hope not. Because whether we know it or not, this side of heaven, everything is tainted if we gauge it or measure it by just ourselves as a standard. But the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, this idea of the the cleansing blood as it talks about, the sprinkling of blood. The sprinkling of blood could make a leper in the flesh clean. It could make a a dirty, ash-filled altar clean. It could make man, a priest, an ordinary man, set apart as holy. That same blood is being sprinkled upon every action, every attempt at obedience that we have. So that should encourage us. That should encourage us to know that God sees every gesture of obedience and He sprinkles it and He receives it as an act of perfect obedience, even as He receives it through Christ. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't have time to do so, but if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we find all through Matthew 5 what the Christian life should look like. And in Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, as I prepare to land the plane, hold those three words on my account in your mind. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, you're reviled, you're mistreated on my account. Hold on my account in your mind. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, there's that word again that means resident alien, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, don't be completely like the world that you live in. Don't completely identify with them. But don't live in a motor home either. Don't live a secluded life. That we just go to church and Bible study and community group and all my friends are Christians. And I don't talk to people at work. Don't live, live like a pilgrim exile, a resident alien. 
Why? Verse 12, 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation. So what he's saying is they will speak against you as evildoers. Eugene Peterson, in the message on that passage, says it like this. Live an exemplary life among the natives. In other words, they're not necessarily, they're not fellow citizens. I'm like a missionary in this community. They're natives. So that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join the celebration when he arrives. What are some of those behaviors that can be both outrageous and prejudiced by the natives, but also attractive and compelling, i leave you with four. Number one, forgiveness. Christians, elect exiles, pilgrims, resident aliens, we are instructed to forgive. And not simply forgive one another. We are not a people who live any longer eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We forgive debts against us. We forgive even as we are led to forgive and measure our debts against God who has pardoned us of all of those things. It's outrageous. The world looks at that and they say, forgive someone who has murdered a family member. Forgive someone that has... um, has, has cheated me financially. Forgive someone that has lied about me. Forgive someone who has slandered me. And a Christian looks and says, where have I? Where have I sinned against God? How great is the forgiveness that I've experienced? And the world looks at us many times and they scratch their heads. Generous to the poor. Generous to the poor. We practice alms at Two Rivers, and that is to give alms just simply by the characteristic of poverty, not character. Generous to the poor, such that you would even take people into your homes. The early Christians were known for taking in children that were left to die in the streets. They were known at no small expense to take care of widows and orphans. Ability to face suffering and death. How? It'll be, it's interesting as it plays out to see in both the papers and online how culture and society is facing the tragic and I believe diabolical deaths at Emmanuel AME Church. You'll read all garden variety of editorials. How do we face suffering? Christians face suffering knowing that God is still sovereign. He is still on the throne. He is still in charge. We may not know why in this life, but we know that God will permit suffering even for the good of man and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, is He the author of sin and death? Far be that. That is not not true. He is not the author of sin nor death. It was man. It was man in garden. The first exile from the garden were Adam and Eve. 
It was man that brought in suffering. It was man that brought in death. It was man that brought fallenness to the beauty of paradise. It was man. It's laid at our door. But God is a redeemer. And He's at work in recovering men and women and even creation. And then finally, and this is one, this is one that I do think that we face the prejudice of the world that we live in. We're going through a sexual revolution such that if we say that we believe in sexual chastity except for marriage, that we believe that outside of marriage itself that we should be pure sexually, we get reviled. We get laughed at, we get ridiculed, and we get persecuted. It could be the shutting down of your business or it could be a lawsuit. There is going to be an increasing number of years simply by bearing the name Christian, there's going to be persecution. How do I know that? Is it because I have such a keen read on the culture? No. It's because it's promised to us. It's promised to us. Remember those words that I ask you to recall on my account? Jesus Christ was both outrageous in some of his teaching and actions and compelling. He was both offensive and attractive. He was crucified because he, the Son of God, said, I am truly the Son of God. I am the steadfast rock. I am the living stone. And you will, he said, reject the stone. The stone that you are to be built upon will be a stumbling stone for many. Many people will be offended by me and my teaching. But even more will be attracted. And they were attracted not simply by his life, Most of us as Christians today have come to Jesus because we were attracted to Him in His death. Persecution, trial, temptation is not a strange thing for the Christian. And though we don't welcome it, it is promised to us. But God will use those things, say Peter, to sanctify us and to drive us even closer to Jesus Christ, the steadfast rock. Are you like Christ? If you are, then you'll have those two identifying marks. There will be people in your life that will say that there are certain things that you believe that are outrageous, even offensive. If they don't, you're playing it too safe. Secondly, there are going to be those things that people are attracted to. I'm intrigued by what you believe. Or why do you do this? It's very attractive to me. How can you forgive someone like that? How can you be so generous and charitable? How can you remain so pure sexually? That's strangely attractive to me. How do you do that? And if you have no one, if your Christianity is not attractive, you're playing it too tight. Maybe you're too pharisaical, too legalistic. You're too separate. You're living in a motorhome. You haven't established residency there. Jesus said, on my account, if we resemble Jesus, we will be both outrageous, offensive, 
but not totally, and attractive, but not totally, that we'll have those components that will mark us out as Christ-elect exiles. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need food for this journey. Peter comes forward and he says, My name is Rock, Stone. But it's not because of my strength, because I have demonstrated that I would betray Christ. I'm a coward, but I'm strong when I stand upon Jesus Christ, this rock. The more we take in of this living stone, we become a stone ourselves. So, Father, may this humble bread and this cup be a fresh consumption of Jesus Christ the one who was the great forgiver, the great and generous one to us, the one who was pure of life and who was willing to be persecuted, reviled, and even die in order to win us. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, elect exiles from this table, as we pray in Christ's name, amen.